Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Group, also teach history at Suffolk University. And our guest today is James R. Fichter. Professor Fichter is a, an associate professor and in the Global Area Studies program at Hong Kong University. Welcome, Professor Thank Fichter. Thank you. And your first book, So Great a Profit, was how the East Indies trade transformed Anglo-American capitalism. You really uh, I don't want to characterize the work you do, but you really do specialize in these trade networks in the 19th century, 18th and 19th centuries, and the development of global capitalism. But your new book, due out any day now, is Tea, Consumption, Politics, and Revolution, 1773-1776, that looks at this event we all know so well, the what we call the Boston Tea Party. But your book tells us it's actually a much bigger story, and Boston isn't central to it. It is. That's true. I mean, I uh, when I came to the story, I thought Boston would be the core of it, and I thought the Boston Tea Party was the the name of the time. And uh, it was only really through digging around through the other secondary literature that you start to pick up. At the time, it had a different name. Um, the destruction of the tea it was often called, mm -hmm. if it was specifically called anything. But of course. You can't give up the moniker, the Boston Tea right. Party. It's the only thing that means anything yeah. to us today. And so uh, we should continue using the term. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. Know, it's rather like the First World War. No one called right. it that at the time either. That's right. That's right. keep on calling it that now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, but in working through the material, it was striking to me how much material there was from far beyond Boston. Oh, yeah. Uh, from as, far as, as far as Charleston which mm -hmm. was surprisingly been yeah. neglected in the yeah. literature compared to yeah. other cities and even farther afield than that. Yeah, and your book really begins with Charlestown, South Carolina in December 2nd when the ships arrive, which is a striking development. So why don't you just tell us what was going on in Charleston, or Charleston, Charlestown, the name changes during the course of the revolution. Mm. And it, it's tricky because if you're, if you're thinking about Boston all the time, you think I'm just talking about Charleston, yeah. Mass. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, in, in South Carolina, uh, the tea arrived there in uh, December, uh, on December 2nd, uh, um, and it had a, a similar trajectory to much of what was going on in Boston, a uh, back and forth between the importers uh, on the one hand and the uh, uh, Patriot organizers mm -hmm. on the other, uh, debating what to do about the tea. But what was so distinctive about Charleston, or at least what seemed so distinctive about it, was that the... Uh, the importers didn't quite back down or they didn't back down in the mm -hmm. same way as happened in other cities. And what seemed, what was so distinct about Charleston was the tea was actually landed. Hmm. Um, unlike in New York or in mm -hmm. Philadelphia um, and unlike in the Boston Tea Party, the tea was landed in Charleston mm -hmm. safely and securely. Mm -hmm. Sons of Liberty didn't come out all morning to interrupt uh, mm -hmm. the safe landing of the tea. The sheriff and the customs officers organized it safely stored it. And the funny thing about it is, is Charleston's geography mm -hmm. um, is so distinctive. They had this great hall where everyone, yeah. many of the patriotic meetings occurred mm -hmm. in um, 1773 and four and five. And this hall sat above a lower level that was uh, uh, served as a customs house storage mm -hmm. space. And mm -hmm. so throughout the debates that would occur in the following year or two in Charleston, as that city also moved toward a more revolutionary posture, they were literally meeting over the tens of thousands of pounds of tea mm. that had been impounded underneath them. Interesting. 
and it would rarely come up in official discussion and, and, and debate, but it's hard to imagine that these Patriot organizers could have completely forgotten about this fact. Yeah, and it's 70,000 pounds of tea. Which is it's a lot. And yeah. when you add the total amount of tea, um, because ultimately tea survived in Boston too. And when you mm -hmm. add that surviving tea up, it's almost as much as the tea that was destroyed, hmm. um, which suggests that the Boston Tea Party, as striking as an event as it was, certainly wasn't the whole story. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And you also make the point that not everyone thought, even people on the Patriot side thought that destroying the tea was a good idea, that this was this great act that is going to unite us. Exactly. There's a, a way in which uh, I think because the United States is a country today and it's mm -hmm. easy to look at the Boston Tea Party as this cut, this moment mm -hmm. beyond which you see that before which you see the British Empire and after which you see the beginning of the making of America, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. you know, the, the people who were engaging with the East India Company's tea in 1773 we're really looking to uh, negotiate imperial authority. And mm -hmm. on that ocean waterfront was where so much imperial authority was negotiated. Uh, the surprise shock of the coercive acts of 74, what was in part so shocking about them was that it really did seem like the past decade had been this back and forth negotiation, a rough and tumble one, mm -hmm. to be sure at times, but one in which the fundamental legitimacy of the empire to decide something wasn't mm -hmm. quite in question. It was more about exactly how it was going to happen, who was going to decide. Mm -hmm. And the Boston Tea Party pushed beyond what was seen as what other patriots in other cities saw as the normal bound of negotiation. Sure, we can deal with this tea. We mm -hmm. can push it aside. We can send it back. We can lock it up without having to destroy it, um, mm -hmm. which seemed a step too far for them. So this does then trigger something late. I mean, is it, it's the coercive acts, the response, as opposed to the event itself, or is it something else that I'm missing? It, it's something else. It's So the Boston Tea Party destroys three ship loads of tea, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and there were four ships of tea that were sent to Boston. Mm -hmm. And this fourth ship, the, uh, the fourth vessel, the William, uh, wrecked off the coast of Cape Cod, and this tea was ultimately salvaged. And in a way that if, if you're patriotic, it was very sneakily, or if mm -hmm. you're uh, a loyalist who was very cleverly uh, secured in Castle William, in this island castle in the middle of Boston Harbor where it was safely locked up. And in this, it mirrors, Boston starts to mirror Charleston. Here you have two ports now, meaningful supplies mm -hmm. of tea, about mm -hmm. 10,000 pounds in Boston. Um, it's a little, you know, mm -hmm. you wonder in Boston, because it was a salvage operation, if all the pounds that were salvaged were really that great. Right. Um, but um, they were salvaged and they were stored in this sort of combined ops op operation where the army was in charge of the castle, the mm -hmm. Navy guarded the water around it, and the customs officers had the keys to the room where the tea was stored. Mm -hmm. But uh, this created a sort of hammer and anvil problem because Boston both had destroyed tea and had tea that could be sold. Mm -hmm. And that was unique. Other cities all had some sort of definitive response. New York and Philadelphia sent it back. Charleston locked mm -hmm. it up. Mm -hmm. Here, Charleston and Boston had done two things at once. And the reason the tea had been destroyed was in part because people may well have wanted to consume it. It was mm -hmm. 
destroyed not simply as a protest, but also yes. as a way to prevent consumers right. from undermining the Patriot movement. And so now here was the remainder of this tea, which could any day yeah. risk being landed. And if it were, and if it were sold, suddenly the ability of Boston Patriots in, say, March or April mm -hmm. to speak for the public on right. this issue would be radically undermined. And so mm -hmm. this this necessitated a level of agitation and right. violence that was mm -hmm. throughout Boston in the winter and early spring. It was very distinctive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You make this uh, really interesting argument that the whole attempt to ban tea was a failure because it was too popular a commodity. And that with a patriots in Boston and other places had pushed non-importation because they couldn't really do non-consumption. Non they couldn't get people to agree to stop the stop drinking tea. Yeah, I, there's there's a you know very old definition of political legitimacy mm -hmm. um, that predates the emergence of American democracy or, or really most systems of specific systems of rule, and it's about you know, are, are the people starving most generally and more broadly, the, the standard of living the, uh, mm -hmm. of the populace. Mm -hmm. And it, it can be dangerous for politicians to be going out and taking things away from people and taking mm -hmm. away consumer goods, right. especially in the 1770s when, you know, historians debate to what extent there was a consumer revolution mm -hmm. going on at the time. It yep. was if whether or not there was, there was certainly enough, there's certainly enough evidence to be worth having a debate about it. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you can look at what daily colonial consumer life was like a generation or two earlier. Mm -hmm. People's lives really were mean and short mm -hmm. and spare. Right. And so to be able to have a little bit extra, to have one extra finer coat, an extra mm -hmm. nice dress, mm -hmm. some Majera to enjoy drinking, a bit of wine, a bit of tea, a bit of coffee, a few other consumer goods, this is what lubricates life and makes it worth living in the cold winter and in to mm -hmm. make daily life a little bit nicer than it used to be. Um, and so this this becomes quite tricky. It, it's hard to see that when we think about consumer protests and we can mm -hmm. be very excited about right. these protests. These are the first major consumer right. protests, boycotts in world history. Right. Yeah. But the boycotts have another side to them, which is, most boycott movements, many boycott movements don't succeed. Right. People yeah. lose interest or yeah. they don't yeah. have the impact they want. Yeah. And this one was potentially no different mm -hmm. because the war happened. Suddenly we stopped paying attention right. to the boycotts. Right. Right. We're not worried about it. Parliament kindly enforced the colonists' boycott of Britain for them right. uh, with the Royal Navy. So yeah. there wasn't really yeah. any long-term necessity for mm -hmm. the public to be engaged in boycotting mm -hmm. yeah yeah we're, we're talking with james victor author of tea consumption politics and revolution and your book also makes this case that you know we overlook the fact that this was a revolutionary period then between the destruction of the tea and the war as people are minds are changing and as you said the british are enforcing this boycott that the patriots and their boycotts hadn't really worked we saw that in the late 1760s with the attempted you know non-importation of British goods in the wake of the Townsend duties, which had, hadn't been working. And uh, again, they're falling apart. And the Boston Massacre really bails out the Patriot movement at that moment. And in this case, it's not just the destruction of the tea. It is the fact that this then triggers the coercive acts and 
um, the change in dynamic, which often we overlook when we're trying to tell the story. We think everything, everyone always thought the same way when instead this is a period of tremendous change. Um, I'm wondering, uh, again, when I was doing some work on the Tea Party some years ago, I remember that I was surprised the first real, uh, I, I, the, the Philadelphia merchants, when they heard about the Tea Act, knew the Bostonians are going to cut us out. So we want all the merchants to agree on something before they, they thought for some reason that Bostonians were self-interested self-dealers and uh, not the so disinterested selfless patriots that we know them to be. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the 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 merchants that were importing tea uh, didn't really have any ability to have a combined intercity agreement, mm -hmm. and the broader groups of merchants also failed to really pull that off. It is funny though; you begin to see in many of these cities, you begin to see merchants acting collectively, either hmm. in response to the East India Company tea imports mm -hmm. or in the broader time period. Yeah. So the Charleston, South Carolina Chamber of Commerce emerges at this moment as hmm. a specific lobby to hmm. speak for the merchant interest. Um, and you see an earlier Chamber of Commerce. It's, it's not called a Chamber of Commerce. It's called a, a meeting of merchants uh, as began to sit in Virginia in the uh, 1769 boycotts. Uh, and that also speaks for this much more spread out collective group. Um, hmm. But this then right, it becomes a problem because there is no, this sort of, the patriot ability to coordinate even is still quite limited. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I like Henry Lawrence, I think, calls the Bostonians the Wiley Cromwellians, which is an interesting term. Is yes, there, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suspect he, he was not one himself. No, I, I don't think so either. And, and Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Patrick Henry all think this was a bad idea. The destruction of the tea was um, not the good event that we see it to be is creating this colonial unity. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is surprising how many people that are sort of leading names of the revolutionary movement, especially people like Patrick Henry, who are mm -hmm. perhaps most famous and most yeah. people for having said one thing once, yeah. also have this other thing to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, is it, this was too radical. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in some ways you can say, well, it really wasn't that radical. It was a property crime. They didn't kill anybody. Mm -hmm. They didn't, really hurt anybody even unlike at other times yes but it was seen as too radical by many other patriot elites and other colonies it was divisive and mm -hmm. in fact the boston committee of correspondence when you look at their letters with the other committees of correspondence mm -hmm. especially outside of massachusetts mm -hmm. and outside of new england where they're more likely to be directly corresponding with mm -hmm. uh colony-wide committees in new york or yeah. or something and they they are apologetic about the Boston hmm. Tea Party. They get the sense that this is embarrassing. Hmm. And so uh, in the the letter, Paul Revere brings the letter from Boston down to New York, and it's brought hmm. on to Philadelphia that explains what goes on there. Hmm. And there's different levels to the apology. On one level, they have to pretend they don't know what happened. Right. The criminal act, the mm -hmm. revolution hasn't happened yet, imperial authority is still there, so they can't admit in writing that they've committed a crime. Mm -hmm. so they, some stuff happened to the tea. We don't we don't know who did yeah. it. Some yeah. Stuff. Yeah. We don't know. Um, but then also they soft pedal the severity of the action mm -hmm. in order to make it seem more palatable to other readers. Interesting. And you know this. It, it's funny. Even Congress a, a year later, when Congress is explaining itself in announcing mm -hmm. the um, Continental Association, 
and explaining itself back to Britain. It says it, it tries to re to launder the Boston Tea Party hmm. as being a more acceptable event. Congress says, oh, if it, it wasn't so bad and, you know, the mm. courts were open, if people were upset, oh, yeah. they could have sued, you yeah. know, they could have yeah. sued the, 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 well, no, the courts mm -hmm. weren't open. The yeah. radicals had prevented judges from yeah. being, right. they had scared away all potential mm. plaintiffs from right. civilian courts, mm -hmm. from admiralty courts, from criminal courts. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no way uh, that that can be true, but you want to reimagine it. Yeah, more palatable that yeah, way. Exactly. So right. The time it's funny yes. in that short yeah. window of time, like you're saying, it's a quick revolution. In that short window of time, people reimagine what things meant, so that even right. a year later, they reimagine their own past, re-remember mm -hmm. it to make it make yeah. sense to themselves. And this is also why they make such a labored effort to blame Thomas Hutchinson, the governor, who won't allow the ships to go, the customs commissioners. It's the fact it's this bureaucracy that's preventing the tea from simply going back, which is what we wanted. Exactly. The, 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 you know, they say we really only wanted to just send it back to Britain and they wouldn't let us do it. Um, and, and uh, you know, actually, you could have mm -hmm. landed it, paid yeah. the tax and shipped it back to Britain yeah. at a loss. That yeah. was yeah. technically illegally possible. There would have been no buyers for it, but mm -hmm. uh, it would have been doable. But the. It was not, uh, you know, that, that need to always blame someone else for it mm -hmm. is to tell that maybe you think it's a blame yeah. where they act. Right. Well, as Samuel Adams said, you know, putting your enemy in the wrong and keeping him in the wrong is a good rule in politics and in war. And that's uh, definitely what we see happening here with the really careful creation of this story around this event. So that, you know, we're blameless and because we know, as you said, that it is a blameable act that, uh, and they're, they're also right in that the uh, colonial officials that they're dealing with are probably most obviously and quite probably deliberately dragging their heels. Yeah. This is the way to really stick it to the Boston Patriots. No, they're not going to help get the Patriots out of this jam. No, they're not going to help mm -hmm. send this tea back to England. They're, go they're going to make it impossible to get rid of and try to, they're in so, so doing, bring down the rebelliousness of the Patriot movement. Mm -hmm. um, and it's striking that after the Boston Tea Party, only two weeks later, suddenly that salvaged tea is coming in from uh, Cape Cod and being mm -hmm. brought to Castle William mm -hmm. and, and Jonathan Clark, the uh, East mm -hmm. India Company consignee in Boston, corresponding with Hutchinson, corresponding with uh, Leslie, uh, Lieutenant Colonel commanding the 64th in uh, the castle, corresponding with other officials they immediately come up with a plan about what to do when the tea arrives. In fact, mm -hmm. they create this tidy little, little legal fiction. They, mm -hmm. Their letters discussing what to do when the tea arrives are all written after it's arrived. Wow. Uh, but they keep pretending it hasn't arrived so that they can uh, not have to commit to anything that might not right. be con well considered. And then mm -hmm. they execute their plan in about a day and a half. Interesting. Uh, they come up with a plan. So when they have to move, they can. It's interesting. So what happens to that tea that lands at Castle William? Well, it's, it's locked up. And mm. to be honest, I spent the longest time trying to figure that out. Mm. It was so confusing. Ultimately, it's sold. Mm. And the weirdest thing is that the only evidence we have that it was sold is in the one place that everyone had looked. And that was the East India Company's papers. Wow. And we had all looked in their ledgers for 73 and mm -hmm. for 74. And mm. we just hadn't thought to look to see if Boston showed up in their mail in 1775. 
Hmm. It did. Wow. Uh, and so it's in 75 after Boston is uh, uh, denuded of its rebellious patriots, after mm -hmm. the battles of Lexington conquered, when uh, Gage allows all the uh, uh, patriots to leave and loyalists come in mm -hmm. from the rest of the province into Boston. So Boston loses about roughly two thirds of its population, mm -hmm. uh, more. Um, and uh, now Boston is a loyal town. There mm -hmm. are no more troublemakers in the city. Uh, there's no more risk of, uh, you know, before this moment, it had been impossible to form a loyalist militia because mm -hmm. the loyalists were afraid to stand right. up and be counted because they knew yeah. the patriots would count them. Right. Now that's not a problem. Now mm -hmm. the tea can be sold. Mm -hmm. And that's when it's sold under, when it's liberated from patriot rule by the British army. Mm -hmm. And the, it, it, it's tempting to discount this and say, well, yeah, of course the, the loyalists bought the tea, mm -hmm. but Yes, that was also the point in 1773. Mm -hmm. The point mm -hmm. of the Boston Tea Party was to prevent people who right. might buy the tea who were not members of the Patriot movement, not believers in the, in the Patriot cause. Mm -hmm. Right, because it was a very popular commodity. And so this yeah. is an attempt to prevent you know, the Patriot people who might be Patriots or lean that way to buy the stuff. So mm -hmm. we have to enforce the boycott. We're talking with James R. Victor, author of Tea, Consumption, Politics, and Revolution, 1773 to 1776. And I, I know that actually the city of Charleston, South Carolina, is planning a big event for December 2nd, commemorating their, um, the events there. And there were other actions in other places. Uh, by the way, what do you know what happens to the tea that's landed in Charleston? It's also drunk. Uh, it's drunk in a different moment. Uh, in 1776 and 77, after American independence, uh, it is uh, decided that what had been the king's property is mm -hmm. now because the U.S. is an independent or mm -hmm. rather because the United States are 13 independent states yes. mm -hmm. uh, 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 becomes reverts to be owned by the, each individual state. Wow. And so the state of South Carolina owns the, uh, the customs facilities and it owns the seized goods. So it owns that tea uh, and they sell the tea off the, the value for the tea. It's a little hard to quite assess the value of it, but it's roughly about the value of some of the fortifications they put up around Charleston in that year. Interesting. Um, and it's meaningful because mm -hmm. at this point, Charleston, uh, the Charleston government is, is basically printing money to pay for the war. Mm -hmm. We begin to have this hyperinflation happening across colonies mm -hmm. by 1777. So being able to sell off assets to pay for uh, the revolution is a much more attractive alternative to just printing money or having to tax your people or raise loans that no one really wants to give them. Um, and so it gets sold. And um, uh, this, of course, is sold in the completely reverse political context of mm. the tea in Boston, right? This is sold by uh, the Patriot government. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it, it, the Patriot government sells it and collects the revenue. Mm -hmm. Weirdly, the, the merchants who administer it are the 1773 East India Company consignees who are hmm. still there what? in 1776. Wow. They hmm. haven't been ostracized. They mm -hmm. haven't been isolated. They've, they have negotiated a different kind of arrangement. Some of them will become loyalists in the future mm -hmm. and, and ultimately leave and be prescribed. But it, that's more around their military service. Mm -hmm. This is this weird moment where the state mm -hmm. takes advantage of them. But interesting, South Carolina has a very distinctive mercantilist and self-interested right. approach to the revolution and the boycotts throughout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And it's much different from what happens to the tea consignees in Boston who are ostracized and driven. They, they're also at a, sent out to Castle William because it's not safe for them on the mainland. That's, That's right. Yeah. 
I wonder, can we talk a little bit about, I do want to talk about where the tea comes from and the East India Company, but before we do that, can we talk a little bit about the tea that gets to Philadelphia and New York and what happens in those places? Yes, so um, the uh, East India Company had sent, as we're saying, four um, larger parcels of tea. The Boston shipment was spread across several vessels. Mm -hmm. For New York and Philadelphia, it's each one large vessel. Mm -hmm. um, and the Philadelphia vessel arrives uh, and on Christmas Day, it, it arrives, news of it arrives. And mm -hmm. because of Philadelphia's geography, you have to go upriver to get to mm -hmm. the city. They're able to intercept it at the, at the river mouth and to tell them, you know, don't go up the Delaware River to Philadelphia. It's going to be a big disaster. Mm -hmm. The ship captain goes up on his own. He sees this large mass meeting of the public and they outfit his ship and send him back to England. Wow. Wow. And Philadelphia becomes this template for New York. Mm -hmm. um, which which is a storyline that runs about four months later. Mm -hmm. I think the New York tea is the weirdest of them um, by far. It mm -hmm. just um, because the, the New York tea ship is hit by a storm and mm -hmm. nearly wrecks and puts it in Antigua. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what puzzles me is why he didn't just sell the tea in Antigua. Yeah. It was any ideas covered by the tea act. Okay. Um, he could have simply said if he had been too wrecked to continue, which was yeah, yeah. not impossible, right? He may have had to unload his tea there if he had been mm -hmm. too wrecked to continue. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't. And of course, the Caribbean is where everyone's buying their smuggled tea. That's so it would right. have been a great place to sell tea to ship yeah. up to right. North America. Right. Um, but right. he didn't. And he carefully kept the tea. He doesn't appear. This ship does not appear in any Antiguan records I've been able to find. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. this is the this is the space where we mm -hmm. need to People need to really start looking, I think, in the story. And eventually when it arrives in New York, it's part of a prearranged story that they will right. bring it to New York. They previously agreed, the governor has previously agreed and then carefully makes himself unavailable yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, ship the tea off and pretend he didn't notice that it arrived. Uh, the naval officers takes the same perspective. Mm -hmm. The Patriots agree to not to be upset about it. The consignees agree not to cause trouble. Everyone has more to gain by just washing their hands of it and moving on. But hmm. that's that's a negotiated settlement. Interesting. So um, I, I, I know we don't want to focus too much on Boston, but what makes it so different from these other places where negotiation was possible? Uh, you mean sort of what made the negotiation yeah. impossible to happen? Yes, exactly. Uh, because the tea both lived and died. It was this hmm. sort of Schrodinger's cat of tea. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so the result is that any negotiated settlement would have a, a negotiated settlement had the always presented the risk of the William T being landed. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a negotiation that the Patriots in Boston could walk away from safely. Mm -hmm. If it gets landed, you know, by the time of the port act, which is really, it's, it's not supposed to be this crazy draconian law. It's supposed mm -hmm. to just punish Boston for the Tea Party, and yeah. if they had put a time limit on it, like close Boston for a month and then mm -hmm. walk away, it could have been a very different story. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot of debate in Boston about will we pay for the tea to reopen the port? The port, the response to the Port Act is not immediately clear. Um, hmm. A lot of people are saying, yeah, let's just reimburse the company, which was what the Port Act requires for Boston to be reopened. Um, but they can't because they don't just have to reimburse the company for its losses, they have to let the Williams tea be landed and sold, right. accept the tea act to be operating, right. Right. agree that the imperial tax system is fine, and basically mm. give up all their talking points. So it there is deliberately structured by the administration 
and by the Patriots in Boston as a existential do or die conflict. Yeah. The administration really focuses on Boston deliberately and uh, by April of 74, as, a, mm -hmm. as they say, to sort of, uh, from their perspective, mm -hmm. is to cut out the rot, right? Right, right. I think uh, Walpole, the diarist, says that the king has Boston on the brain. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, now, one of the stories that emerges, or myths, uh, um, stories that emerges from, from the Patriots is that Americans, and again, you talk about this definition of American and when, where does it come from, and does this unify people, and you say it doesn't, is also that they gave up drinking tea and switched to coffee, and you make the case that Americans continued to drink tea, even though it was politically suspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the most obvious way to sort of think our way through the illogic of turning away tea mm -hmm. is um, uh, during the revolution, Americans became quite good at taking the British army's things and using it against them. Mm -hmm. Henry Knox famously right. brings those yeah. cannons from Fort Ty Ticonderoga mm -hmm. up more or less what will become route, uh, you know, I-90 yeah, yeah, yeah. over to Boston and besieges uh, mm -hmm. uh, the British positions. Well, Good for him, but he yeah. certainly wasn't boycotting British goods by doing that. Um, well, so, he was seizing, appropriating them. Right, but if you can if you can appropriate rather than boycott mm -hmm. British arms, mm -hmm. which are much more significant than mere tea, right. why are we making a fuss over tea? Mm -hmm. And of course, this is because the, the boycott movement is never just about tea. It quickly moves from tea to all imports, right. ex from and exports to Britain. And so mm -hmm. why... Why should we be depriving ourselves of, of British shirts and, and, and British goods if we are using British guns? Right. Um, as long as we're using them, as long as we're taking them from them and appropriating them, we take them in war and make them ours, then it's all the more of a triumph. Mm -hmm. And so there becomes this weird way in which tea becomes this thing that we must symbolically oppose. And it has this very useful symbolic value, but then quickly loses it once warfare mm -hmm. begins, because it's one more thing we can take from the enemy and line our pockets with. And mm -hmm. so much of civilian experience of warfare, of course, is looting, being on one side or the other of that. Mm -hmm. And of course, the privateering that goes on as well. Interesting. Interesting. We're, we're talking with James Victor from uh, Hong Kong University about his book, Tea, Consumption, Politics and Revolution. And of course, you're writing um, this from a, an interesting perspective, that is, you're in Hong Kong, which is where the tea came from, that south, southern China. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the East India Company and its, you know, how it works in getting the tea from southern China to Boston in 1773. Mm -hmm. So the English East India Company had been long been involved in this tea business. Uh, it wasn't the most, uh, it wasn't yet the, its most successful business. Uh, uh, and in fact, the Dutch East India Company was in many ways doing better mm -hmm. than the English at this time. The English company was hampered by British taxes, uh, which made it very expensive to, to consume legally imported tea, either in North America or in Britain. And so the entire smuggling network that the East India Company is dealing with in North America is a mere you know, appendage of this broader smuggling network that is smuggling tea from France and the Netherlands mm -hmm. and, and Denmark and Sweden into Britain across the North Sea and the English mm -hmm. Channel. Um, and so all of these East India companies, the English, the Dutch, and so on, are all sourcing their tea from the same port uh, in China, uh, from Canton and, and Macau. And this is, of course, strange, right? How you could be importing things 
all these rival companies are buying things from the exact same location mm -hmm. and and then shipping them halfway across the planet, but more or less on strikingly similar routes. The right. shipping route from China to France and China to Britain is the same mm -hmm. except yeah. the last few miles. Uh, uh, and uh, and then suddenly it, they differentiate once they get there. Um, mm. And so the East India Company had this huge supply of tea. Um, we sometimes like to say that they used that the tea act was used in part to help the East India Company unload its supplies of tea. This wasn't quite accurate. Uh, um, they were getting bailed out already, uh, mm. and American demand probably wasn't big enough to make a difference. Right. Um, but it, it, um, it, the company did have a massive supply, uh, and it had gone through the previous uh, adjustments in the tea taxes in the 1760s poorly, not, mm -hmm. not because of North America, which was kind of irrelevant, but because mm -hmm. of Britain, that they yeah. had overbought tea and anticipating that these tax cuts would make for greater tea sales in Britain. Mm -hmm. And they did it wrong. Uh, uh, and they didn't cut their prices enough to take market share. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they had massive oversupply of inventory, millions, tens of millions of pounds mm -hmm. of, of inventory mm -hmm. and about at least 7 million pounds oversupply. Um, mm. But, you know, all it takes is a little inventory management and you can sort yourself out. They had right. sorted themselves out in a few years. Mm. Um, the, the weird thing about this, uh, one thing that I'm talking with other colleagues about what tea is and what it mm. means. It's confusing how old this tea must have been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about it wasn't uh, one doubts the Chinese merchants, the Hong merchants that were selling to the senior company were always selling the newest stuff. Mm hmm. Uh, by the time it got shipped from there to Britain, it was six months older already. Mm -hmm. India Company then keeps it in rotation in its warehouses in London, mm -hmm. and the oldest stuff gets sold first, of course, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. Uh, um, and so there's actually some debate over whether the tea sent to Boston was rubbish, old, out of time mm -hmm. tea mm -hmm. anyway uh, that wasn't worth much. Right. Yeah. It's very unclear. Um, we'll have to ask the fish. Uh, what they think of it, but there's no way for us to know. Yeah, that's um, but uh, uh, so, uh, you know, it is a puzzle. And then if it had been like the Williams tea or the tea mm -hmm. from the London, that was the ship that brought yeah. tea to Charleston, yeah. locked up for two, three more that's years. Right. Yeah. This tea could be five or 10 years old by the time people are drinking it. Wow. Wow. Does anyone comment on it? I mean, they're probably in Boston under blockade. They're probably happy to have anything. But, uh, exactly. I yeah. And in and, and, and Charleston in the revolution, which mm -hmm. is, also under some level of blockade, yeah, happy yeah. to have anything, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't see any complaints about it. Right, and, yeah. But um, I mean, the, I guess the, if it was the fish got the better tea. Yeah. 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 So, so, so it's interesting. Now, um, the tea market, I mean, it had emerged. In, when does tea become a staple in America or in Britain? You know, Britain is really the focus of the company. They're not, when these, the tea act, they're really not thinking, how is North America going to react? They're thinking about the company and its needs. So, uh, when does tea become such a popular commodity in in, yeah, in I mean, England, France, the Netherlands? Middle of the 18th century, it really mm -hmm. emerges as a major consumer good in Britain, and it's it, it, it's also part of this actually this very fascinating literature on how we understand the emergence of the British Industrial Revolution and the mm -hmm. shift in what the average Englishman is drinking. Is it and eating? Is it oats and brown bread and beer? Mm -hmm. Or is it tea and white bread with jam and sugar? Uh, uh, the latter is this 19th century industrial diet, and the former is this 18th century healthy farmer diet. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this shift. Uh, mm -hmm. And by the middle 18th century, you see all sorts of 
you know, middle class English people complaining that poor people are drinking tea and it's offending them by daring mm. to ape their betters. Um, but you know, tea consumption isn't limited to Britain. There's tea mm. consumption in Germany as well. The Netherlands mm. consume significant amounts. Mm. Um, so it's a more widespread good uh, at that time already. Interesting. Interesting. And you also make the uh, case about comparing the whole politicization of tea with Madeira, another popular drink that the Americans don't boycott. Yes. I mean, this is striking. The, the um, Madeira is the only other commodity that's specifically, uh, the only other consumer good that's specifically mm -hmm. singled out in the article of association and the boycotts around them. Mm -hmm. And they, they say this when they boycott trade from the wine islands, which means mm -hmm. Madeira and, and, and other similar islands, so they mm -hmm. can boycott this. And these are uh, uh, islands which are not controlled by Britain, but are economically dominated by British merchants mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. live on the island, supply the Madeira. Mm -hmm. um, but Madeira does not become a symbol of mm -hmm. it, and even though it's officially boycotted. Uh, mm -hmm. And this, it's not practical or really to make it a symbol because uh, the boycott says, well, you know, it's only Madeira imported after this date, December uh. 1st, 17. 74. So you can't tell by looking at the bottle when it was imported. Mm -hmm. And colonists like to age their own Madeira anyway. Mm -hmm. So you buy it young before the boycott starts, you keep it in your cellar during the boycott, and you drink it when it's mm -hmm. aged after. Uh, mm -hmm. And so Thomas Jefferson's happy to uh, settle his Madeira bill at the end of the Second Continental Congress mm -hmm. when, the, uh, yeah. when it was under yeah. boycott, but only new Madeira, and he's mm -hmm. not violating any rules. Mm -hmm. uh, by doing so. So it never has that symbolic value. They're not smashing bottles of Madeira in protest, even though mm -hmm. on paper they should be. Yes, no, that's right. That's right. We've uh, been talking with James Victor, author of Tea, Consumption, Politics, and Revolution, 1776. Now, is the book out yet? When will we be able to read it? It is not out. It comes out on December 15th, uh, okay. 2023, uh, in uh, the day before an August date, uh, before the Boston right. Tea Party's 25th anniversary. Um, so it is available for pre-order at the mm -hmm. Cornell University Press uh, website. Very good. Very good. Thank you. I mean, it seems like we've covered a lot of ground and we probably could go on, in my case, all day and yours would be all night. But I know we, uh, anything else we should talk about before we let you go? Oh, I, I think it's been wonderful. I think... I, I think we should uh, stop here, yeah. Okay, I think so. You're, you're, you're right. Let's give folks a break. So thank you so much to James Victor for joining us from Hong Kong. And we look forward to the book, Tea, Consumption, Politics, and Revolution. And so thank you. And I want to thank our producer, Jonathan Lane, the man behind the curtain. who's. Um, and if, by the way, if you have an idea for a topic or a guest, uh, send Jonathan Lane an email, jlane at revolution250.org. And I also want to thank our many listeners around the world, including Professor Victor, who says he listens in from Hong Kong. But we also have listeners in Marseille and in Frankfurt, Garfield, New Jersey, Warren, Vermont, Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and Brisbane, Australia, and all places between and beyond. If you're in one of these places, send Jonathan an email, and they'll send you one of our Revolution 250 refrigerator magnets. And I look forward to talking to you all again. And Professor Victor will be making an appearances in North America in December. So look for him then about the time the book comes out. And now we will be piped out on the road to Boston. Absolutely. Thank you.